Welcome to the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast. Brought to you by Ospin and Fresenius Carby. We are your hosts. I'm Bridie. And I'm Emily. And we are accredited practicing dietitians. We don't have all the answers. So each episode, we will deliver insightful conversations with our nutrition leaders who help us navigate the ever-changing world of clinical nutrition. This podcast takes you on a deep dive into evidence-based nutrition and what it means to be a nutrition professional. Together, we will find the answers to your questions, shine a spotlight on our nutrition colleagues, and help you create an impact in your nutrition career. In this season, we talk with leading nutrition professionals who share their expertise in oncology, enteral and parenteral nutrition. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and is for educational purposes only. Always consult a healthcare professional prior to providing or accepting any clinical interventions. When we're considering those requirements for our patients, um, obviously we want to prevent overfeeding as well. So what sorts of things should we be looking for to prevent overfeeding or, or just signs that we might be overfeeding? Should we be looking at infusion rates of glucose or lipids? And, and if we should be, what are those targets? Cool. So absolutely, I think we should definitely be monitoring our infusion rates. And so back to my earlier comment that we bypass all of the physiological safeguards that our body has in place when we're feeding ourselves enterally or orally, um, we need to be doing that manually in, in PN. So um, all of the, the various um, enteral and parenteral nutrition societies around the world have recommendations around this and again evidence-free zone they're a little bit different but they sort of if you look at the middle middle range of that you're looking at around about four to five milligrams per kilogram per minute of glucose infusion um, aspen the, the american society makes a reduction for critically ill patients um, which isn't necessarily followed by say the the DA recommendations or the ESPEN recommendations. ESPEN puts a, a top limit of about 350 grams of glucose um, in a, at a 70 kilo patient uh, on top of that recommendation. Uh, when we look at lipids, again, we're looking at, again, there's different ways of, of doing it, but generally the, the accepted level would be under a gram per kilo per day of lipid. Although the caveat for that is that's based on um, 100% soy lipids. So we might have a little bit of leeway with our more contemporary uh, IV lipid emulsions from there. Um, so yeah, it's there, there is variation in clinicians as to how they interpret those, but I think keeping to that general um, principles of not overfeeding the mitochondrial ability to deal with those nutrients is, is really important for safe PN. And probably the key difference between how we practice PN now versus back in the olden days where um, high, overfeeding and hyperalimentation was kind of the way that they way that they went um you asked about sure. how we'd, rec how we'd um, identify overfeeding if we were seeing it so one of the ways that I think you can probably look at is when they take a blood sample is it lipemic so it doesn't look when the when the lab gets it it's got sort of fat molecules through it um, and that can just be an indication that the liver's starting to struggle to clear the lipid from the bloodstream uh, again assuming that they've taken the sample appropriately and it hasn't um, been taken at the same time that the PM was actually running um, sometimes the you can sort of see higher blood sugars in patients if maybe we're giving them too much glucose. Um, in longer term patients, and by that I mean probably more than three or four weeks on PN, um, if you start to see a bit of a trend in the ALT going up, um, that can be an indication that they're starting to store some fat in their liver, uh, which can be an indication of, of um, overfeeding. But again, in an acute patient, there's going to be so many things that are going to be affecting those liver function tests. So that's probably not very useful uh, in the in the hospital setting for the average patient, 
Um, but I think the main thing is you, you can't rely on weights to to give you the the indication if you're overfeeding somebody. If you're if you're overfeeding them, you're probably overhydrating them if they're still getting other IV fluids or if that's not being optimally managed. Sure. And with those acute patients, what's the time frame that we would expect to see some of those overfeeding effects, particularly if you're saying starting at target rate um, and, and progressing from there? Would it be within a couple of days or is it more after a week that we'd see that? I would gen- I mean, the, the blood sugar things you might, the blood, ugh, try that again. <laughs> the blood sugar changes you might see sooner within probably the first 48, 72 hours, uh, maybe even earlier, depending on the patient, if they've got, um, you know, underlying, underlying issues in that area. Um, the lipid changes would be a bit longer, probably closer to a week. Um, and certainly the liver changes would be, like I said, sort of getting to that longer term PN mark of three to four weeks and beyond. Are there times when you recommend cyclic PN? Absolutely. Um, anybody who's on PN for more than about two weeks, I will automatically clock over to cyclic PN. And my reason for that is it's um, protecting the liver because our livers were never designed to deal with a continuous lipid infusion. Um, so yeah, it's, it's one of the ways to do that. The other thing is it also has a good impact on the patient's quality of life. It gives them uh, t- pump-free time to be able to go out with their families, to out of the ward or to go and have a shower unencumbered, those sort of things, which when you're a hospitalised patient and really unwell, I think we underestimate the power of those to, to really um, improve things for the patients. Absolutely. And, and also other therapies, physio and, and the other uh, teams Absolutely. that go around, it must be much easier without the pump. Definitely. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Pump free time is gold. Um, so Emma, you, you touched on before and gave us some really good history on the development of parental nutrition. Um, but since the te- that since parental nutrition has been developed, the type of lipid that has been used over that time has changed um, several times now. So can you tell us a bit more about those changes and what the current literature says around the types of lipids available and what we should be using? Sure. Like I think IV lipids are probably the most difficult aspect of PN and they have been historically in fact initially when Dudrick first started doing the 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 PN in the 60s they didn't even have a safe lipid they could use so it was lipid free for the first probably five to five to ten years uh, which obviously created its own problems because the lipid is a really key point for the essential fatty acids as well as um, energy provision so they they, these have been through an evolutionary process as well so first generation lipids and the ones we were using in Australia up until about 15 or 20 years ago were 100% soy based Um, so these were the first safe effective ones on the market Um, they provide the most essential fatty acids of any of the type of uh, PN solutions because it's actually soy lipid that gives the best doses of those Um, however it became pretty evident over the time that even though these are are safe in in the the most basic sense they're probably not great for the liver Uh, and the high omega-6 fatty acids are thought to contribute to to inflammation in the body so um, to try and deal with that second generation lipids were developed which we never actually really used very much in Australia these were a mix of soy and MCT oils or structured lipids In, in our practice here the olive oil dominant IV lipids came about probably 20 years for 15, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and they're kind of called third generation lipids. So these are mostly mostly olive oil, which are thought to be less inflammatory than the, the omega-6 from the, the soy. But because olive oil doesn't have any essential fatty acids, there's still a component of soy lipid associated with those. And then the more recent generation, the fourth generation lipids are those that contain the fish oils. And they have 
um, usually a more diverse fatty fatty acid profile because they the majority of them are a mixed lipid with soy, olive oil, MCT, and fish. So they, they and I, I think they probably are a bit more reflective of what a fatty acid profile would look like if you're eating a normal diet. So I think that's a real benefit. Um, and it'll be interesting, interesting to see where the lipid evolution goes sort of from, from here. Uh, so the literature, I guess, is a bit of a minefield because different countries do different things with their lipids. They've had the availability of the second and third and fourth generation lipids available at different timeframes. So I think when we look at the literature, we have to look at the, the context in which that it's been published or in, in the environments that that's been relevant. So I, I guess, first of all, there's a lot of studies that compare the third and fourth generation lipids with 100% soy. Now, they all show that the third and fourth generation lipids are superior to soy, which we kind of expect based on the, the, the things we've just talked about. Um, but that's not a very useful comparison for us these days because that's not the clinical decisions we're, we're choosing between. We don't really have 100% soy as, a, as an option anymore. Um, so the other another element in the literature is there's a lot of meta-analyses that compare the fourth generation lipids with the, with the first and the third generation lipids through meta-analysis. Um, and look, these these all sort of suggests that the fish oil is, is superior than that. But I think these, these meta-analyses have a lot of flaws that we need to be really aware of. Um, so part of the reason meta-analysis is so powerful is you can actually compare similar studies to increase the power of your analyses to get, I guess, more robust decisions for making clinical decisions. But that premise is based on that you're comparing like with like. And a lot of these studies just simply don't do that. So they're comparing different fish oil products with different fish oil doses, with different fish oil durations to a control that isn't even the same. They can be soy based, they can be olive oil based. Um, so obviously those comparisons are going to be a little bit confounded as a result of that. So the two studies that I think are probably most useful in the current environment when it comes to looking at lipid um, emulsions are a couple that came out a couple of years ago. And these are the only ones that I'm aware of that make direct comparisons between the, the second and the third generation lipid um, levels. Now, unfortunately, they still have some methodological flaws because anybody who's done research in real life knows it's not easy and your patients disappear and uh, you know that you can't physically do the duration of the time that you would really wanna do the study for. Um, and that's true of both of these studies as well. So, um, but I think what we can take from those is that these lipids are safe and they're safer than they've ever been. Um, they're a lot more physiological, but I don't think we have the data to show that one is superior to the other at this point. Um, the studies just aren't simply long enough that, you know, being done on a rare disease, there's not a lot of patients to draw your, your sample from. Um, but I think bottom line is that we, we can avoid essential fatty acid deficiencies with these products. We can provide safe PN that's going to be more protective to the liver. And I think we can we can use use either or and just wait for better quality studies to guide our decision at this point. But it it is it's a really interesting area, and it's probably the most studied area within PN. I would say that's such a great answer, Emma. Thank you. It's it is really a minefield to know um, how to navigate all those different lipids, and I think, like you said, the differences between um, what countries have access to is is a really important point that um, that infiltrates the literature too. So, but like you said 
most important thing for our patients is that the things that we can provide, particularly here in Australia, are safe. Um, and, and that's really important. Um, as, as you said before, the, um, the safety of um, parental nutrition has just um, continued to evolve. Um, and this is obviously part of that story too. And Emma, do you always use triple chamber bags? Are there any instances where you may use a lipid-free bag, for example? I would say probably 99% of the time we'd use, a, we'd use all of the macronutrients, so triple chamber bags. Uh, there's a couple of occasions, I guess, clinically where maybe we wouldn't want to use lipid, in which case we would go to the modular components um, that would make up otherwise. Or, you know, sometimes you can be a bit sneaky and only break the, uh, the, the connection between the glucose and the amino acid sections of a triple chamber bag if you don't have access to those, those modular components on their own. Um, so I think just thinking back to my practice, probably the only times we would use lipid-free would be when we've had some really heavy going um, hypertriglyceridemia in pancreatitis um, in some of those patients we've, we've used that for or if the patients have had a um, have had a problem with the lipid itself so I guess the, the other thing about lipids is they're probably the most allergenic aspect of PN that said it's still quite rare but with a lot of the components of it, some people have, have objections to either the, the the fish or the egg components to for the like egg egg lifts and for the emulsifiers that are used in all of them. Uh, or if you don't have a non-fish oil containing product available, they're not uh, kosher halal. And obviously for vegetarians and vegans, that's not acceptable. So sometimes we, we're making it for clinical reasons and sometimes we're making it for um, in respecting patient decisions. Yeah, it's very. It's a really interesting area, isn't it? Trying to balance all of the different considerations for the different patients. But thank you. <laughs> so Emma, we know TPN or parental nutrition, I should say, generally, not always, and not <laughs> to the exact micronutrient level, provides all the nutrition that we need. But we've spoken about um, supplemental parental nutrition. So what is this and how do we incorporate that into our practice? And, and what are the types of patients that might benefit from that? So supplemental nutri parental nutrition is an emerging area. I guess it's probably been most commonly used in the intensive care setting where patients who are really critically unwell get a lot of um, critical illness, gastroparesis, and don't tolerate their enteral feeds particularly well. But we also know that these are probably some of the most vulnerable patients to, to lean tissue loss while they're acutely unwell, and therefore nutrition is, is critical to helping their, their recovery and their survival from their ICU stay. So supplemental parental nutrition I guess was born out of the, the the challenge of how do we actually nourish patients in in that situation uh, so essentially supplemental PN is providing the balance of nutrition through PN even though you've got a functioning gut or a, or a partially functioning gut uh, where you're either getting enteral feeding or oral feeding and, and PN will be provided just to sort of fill in the gaps from there um, in our in our organisation, we do pelvic exenteration surgeries, which are massive salvage surgery for patients with recurrent or really locally advanced colorectal or gynecological cancers. Uh, and because of the the nature of the surgery, it's quite prone to a fairly protracted recovery. And um, because of, I guess the the observation that a lot of these patients ended up going on PN at some point in their recovery anyway, we've pick that up as another area that we will use supplemental PN. Um, all patients get a pick the day before their surgery. They'll be fed 50% of their requirements for PN through PN in addition to whatever they can tolerate orally until they're well-established on an oral intake or, or until that they've got complications and then they go to full PN from there. So kind of a bridge. It's, I, I see supplemental PN as being a bit of a bridge, getting you from 
from uh, where you're at to being fully enterally fed again. Yeah, sure. Thank you. And we touched on this briefly earlier, but um, peripheral PN is also an emerging area. Is it something that you're using in practice? <laughs> really good question. Um, historically, we, we have used very little PPN and that was because we didn't have availability of it. If we did need it, it had to be a compounded bag that came up from Sydney, usually took about 72 hours to get to us. And often by the time we did get it for the patient, the need for it had passed. Um, we'd been able to get a, a pick line or something into them. But um, we, we are it is an area that we are looking at. And we've actually just done a study of our PN database looking at the characteristics of patients who might actually be able to be better put onto PPN than to central PN. Um, so yeah, we, we don't use it very much at the moment, but our plan is to, to sort of move more into that, that area. It does have the advantage of um, being able to potentially start it sooner for patients if you're waiting for, for access for them. Or if, you know, with some patients, you, you sort of, they're on the cusp. You don't know whether you, they're going to get better or they're going to get worse. You kind of wish you had a crystal ball to know which way it was going to go. Um, PPN might be a reasonable solution to avoid the placement of a, of a central venous access device in those patients. So that's, I guess, where we're starting to, to look at it. And certainly in our, in our um, hospital, the key area that it looks like it might be useful for is for the PN cohort that we use when they, we actually have a delay to getting a nasogenual tube in. We know those patients are probably going to be on PN for less than seven days. And so um, they're probably an ideal uh, candidate for PPN if their vasculature will allow it. Yeah, excellent. Everything's easier with retrospect, isn't it? <laughs> always, yeah. always. I think TPN is, it's especially true with, with PN where you sort of, you know, you, you need to call it one way or the other. And um, sometimes with all of the clinical experience and expertise and guidelines, it still just can be a tricky call. Um, and we, we mentioned earlier that the osmolarity and the glucose concentration are obviously lower and different in peripheral PN. Are there any other differences in terms of formulation? Yeah, because the um, and I guess it's it's related to the to the osmolarity and the concentration is that the nutritional provision is limited in um, in PPN because you've got to do it in a larger volume, and you've you've got to do it with a lower osmolarity. So for for a lot of our larger patients, you, you may not actually physically be able to provide them their nutritional requirements through PPN. Um, the other issue is because of the larger fluid volume, there's not really any avenue to be able to. Um, reduce reduce that without significantly reducing their, their nutritional provision as well. So that's the other consideration for, for some patients. You may not be able to provide them what they need. Great, thank you. And Emma, on that note, um, with, with um, PPN, is there anything we should monitor in addition to the things we've already spoken about? It sounds like there might be a little bit extra fluid that we could consider. I think, I think the, the two things you to be uh, mindful of with PPN um, one is the fluid status because that can be a challenge, but probably probably just as much, if not more than that, is the cannula side itself. And and I guess this is probably more for our nursing and medical uh, colleagues. But the 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 cannulas you can get um, thrombophlebitis uh, as as part of a complication of this. That just basically means you've got a really irritated blood vessel, um, and that can be because maybe you it, the blood vessel is just not coping with the osmolarity of it. It might be a little bit more distal on the arm than perhaps it should have been that that will make it harder for the vein to be able to cope with if you don't have a um what do you call it? If, you, if you get tissueing around that site you're getting pn into the to the tissue not just iv fluids or whatever else might have been given that can be very very irritating so keeping a really close eye on that cannula site is really really important and they Thank do have you. to be changed quite regularly too every 48 to 72 hours i think is the, the current yeah that is quite, quite frequent isn't it yeah that's great mm -hmm. thank you 
And another area that you have worked extensively with is home PN. Can you give us an overview of what, what it's like for a patient receiving home PN from, from a patient perspective? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, hard to answer, though, because I think everybody's home PN journey is quite different. Um, if you look at the literature, it sort of says that um, patients will have a reduced quality of life on PN if they've had a significant life change, like if they've been living quite happily and then have a, a, a sudden trauma or a, or a vascular issue where they've lost their bowel. And so they've gone from one day being completely normal, happily living their life to now being on PN. And usually in those cases, it's it's quite a, like seven days a week PN compared to patients who might have had a really difficult couple of years leading up to it they might have had uncontrollable um, Crohn's or you know difficulties with motility disorders and those patients seem to get have report better quality of life when they go on PM because it's just like so all of a sudden they go oh my goodness now I'm properly nourished and and things are, are looking better again um, it also shows that the more days you're on PN and the longer the infusion and the more connections that you have on PN naturally it's going to affect your quality of life poorly whereas the converse of that is also true the less you have the better things are um, based on my experience working with these patients uh, I think it a lot of it it's so variable um, you you've got the the frustrations where I think sometimes people come into a home PN program where they actually see it as kind of the magic bullet that's going to make everything better for them and often it doesn't do that it'll improve their nutrition but it doesn't necessarily solve their symptoms and often they will pick up a whole bunch of new lifestyle frustrations like interrupted sleep from pumping, a, 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 beeping alarms that are, are going off through the night during their infusion time or having to get up two or three times a night to, to go pee because obviously you put fluid in, your bladder fills and off you go. Um, that can be really upsetting for people. You know, there's, there's different limitations than they had before. If they've got a, a Hickman's line or a, an accessed port, you know, they can't go swimming. They can't even have a shower without being really mindful about keeping that site dry so that they're reducing their risk of infections. Um, the ability to be spontaneous and just to go on a trip or to, to go on holidays takes a huge amount of planning um, on PN. So there's a, there's a lot of, a real lot of challenges with it that I think we, we maybe underestimate. And certainly our practice with our team is to try and do whatever we can to, to, to minimize those and, and to, to help identify those problems and, and solve them for them. On the flip side, though, people will often report that they, their energy levels come back and they, fit, they start to feel really, really good again. And that can take a couple of months before, you know, while things are sort of settling before that, that happens. Um, I think uh, Marion Winkler, who's one of, the, um, one of the doctors who works in this area in America, does a lot of qualitative uh, work in home PM patients. And I can't remember her phrase exactly, but it was something like she, she summarises a lot of her work as, patients describing as being hooked up and tied down but happy to be alive and I, I, I relate to that very much with that when I see some of my patients and some of the challenges they go through. Absolutely it sounds you know very double-edged sword um, lots of benefits drawbacks and burden as well but that that phrase does sum it up really well. Mm. Emma taking all those patient-centered factors into account and, and, and being so aware of them how do you go about designing a regimen for those patients knowing that it can be so impactful to to their day and their quality of life so the first thing the first thing I do is I sit down with the new patient and I try and get a bit of a sense of what their what their normal day looks like and admittedly depending on the circumstances that might change quite a lot when they go home if they've been 
critically unwell, but trying to get an idea of the things that are really important to them, if they're planning to go back to work, if they've got young kids that they're caring for, if they've got hobbies that they want to incorporate, and just trying to make sure that we can ensure that there's enough time off their PN um, that they can still enjoy those things and, and work around those. Um, obviously, for patients who still have some oral intake that they're absorbing, or if they're in an adaptation process where over time we're anticipating that will get more. Um, it's it's really just a matter, I guess, of working out where our starting point with is for PN, working out the safest amount that we can give them over the shortest period of time um, that's going to meet their requirements. So that really we're doing whatever we can to try and minimize the the burden that we know we, we know that PN is a is a significant burden um, for patients who are on it in the community, but uh, doing what we can to try and try and minimize that. Yeah. Yep. And you spoke about it really well before about some tips um, that we should be monitoring for those longer term um, patients on parental nutrition. Do those same things apply for the home setting? Um, and also, is there anything else you want to add or, or other clinicians that should be involved um, when someone is at home on parental nutrition? Uh, yeah, sure. So definitely um, a lot of the, the monitoring I was referring to earlier was, I guess, with home PN patients in mind. So the, the micronutrient testing um, particularly if patients are adapting or taking oral supplementation, we need to make sure that we're not overdoing some of those things or underdoing them if their losses are higher because I guess home PM patients, they're so individual, some of them will have pretty significant losses that we might not be able to cover with just the standard provision um, from like a multi-trace element and a multi-vitamin. Um, so we, we often have to individualise uh, individualize those. Um, I guess just checking in generally with the patient, so how they're coping at home. Um, we find that a lot of people really struggle. I think home PN, it's quite an isolating intervention for people and because the, you know, it's not like cancer or heart disease where everybody knows somebody who's had it or got it or, you know, nobody's ever heard of it. Half of the medical professionals they go and see go, PN, what's that? Like it's, it's, it's really um, a struggle for some of these patients. And I often think we don't utilise psychology as much as we do to help patients through this adaption process if they're if they're new to PN or if something else has changed and, and they just, it's just like the, the straw that breaks the camel's back for them sometimes. So I think I think involving being aware of and involving mental health care professionals I think is something that we probably need to do more of in this space. Yeah, certainly it certainly sounds like that. And so now to wrap up, do you have any top tips for uh, clinicians who are prescribing PN or managing patients receiving PN? So I think you've probably picked up on the first one that I would say, which is good multidisciplinary support. Um, it doesn't matter how experienced you are in PN, you always need the team because at the end of the day, PN needs to be a, a multidisciplinary process. You need medical oversight, you need pharmacy expertise, you need nursing expertise, you need dietetic expertise if we're going to have a safe um, and an and effective outcome for these patients. So that'll be my first, my first thing. And I guess probably just to also circle back, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a formal team. Obviously, that's that's better, but I am very aware that a lot of facilities don't have that available to them. It's phone a friend, work out who's had experience with it in the past, whether it be your hospital or somebody else's, if you know you get to the point where you don't have anybody to um, locally to provide assistance, phone a friend. There's always people around who will be able to provide you some advice um, for these patients. So the ability to sort of escalate any concerns and, and, and get the advice, even if not inbuilt in your organisation, I think that's a really good tip, Correct. especially for rural and regional centres that may not have, you know, the team support. Yeah. 
No, I think I think yeah, that's that's probably number one by a long shot. Um, monitoring we've talked about, I think that's really important. I, I think no matter what you do with the patient, as long as you respond to what you're seeing in in all the various aspects of your monitoring, that's the way forward. There's there's no, you know, perfect energy equation. There's no perfect blood test. There's no perfect you know, uh, anthropometric test, you just have to sort of look at the trend, see what's happening and and be um, really onto it with those sort of things. I think that's a, a really important issue as well. And I think just the last thing, whether it be an inpatient or a home patient or somewhere in between, understanding what's important to the patient um, and helping to incorporate that into your prescription as well. Um, I know historically we've just done people on 24-7 PN infusions. Not only is that not great for your, for your liver long-term, but it's not good for the patient. They're sitting in a, in a four-bed bay, staring at the wall. They've, they've got a much, uh, I think it helps their recovery and helps their mental health, helps every aspect of their hospital stay if they can get a bit of distance from the ward, if that's you know, clinically appropriate, go out with their families down to the, to the courtyard or, or the food court or wherever and, and um, just feel human for a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're really great tips. Thank you. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today on the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast. It's been so great to hear all of your uh, expertise and, and uh, ha- have you educate us. So thank you. No worries. It's been great. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast brought to you by Ospen and Fresenius Carby. If you would like to support the podcast, please subscribe to the show and share it with your friends and colleagues. To keep up to date with all the latest from Austin, you can head over to our website at www.ospen.org.au or email us at podcast at 